Well, good morning and welcome to all of you who are here with us for the last Sunday of the year. We especially want to welcome Converge and West Campus, South Campus, Internet Campus, and the most recent campus, The Hive. We're glad you're here with us this morning. I'm excited. I'm excited because this has been a good year. I'm excited because the difficult things that have been part of this year hopefully won't show up in the same way the next year. I don't know about you, but uh, this might feel a little bit like the calm after the storm because the Christmas season for, I think, many of us is incredibly busy. I wanna look today at a psalm that's the final one in our series of the Psalms of Ascent. We started this back in mid-November. Doug kicked us off when he looked at Psalm 121 and reminded us that our help comes from the Lord. You know, these psalms were called Ascension Psalms because they were sung and rehearsed by the people of Israel as they approached Jerusalem, which was the high point, or one of the high points in Israel, uh, aside from Mount Hermon, but I get lost in the details. But that's where they were going up to. They were going up to meet the Lord and reminding themselves of all the gracious and good things that he provided for them. Ted followed that up and he reminded us that there's a certain kind of vanity that we can pursue when we pursue things in our own strength. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers who build it labor in vain. And then it says in verse two, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. We live as though we're independent of God oftentimes. Jonathan reminded us in this other psalm of this series that only has three verses, like today, that it's good when brothers dwell together in unity. And then we have the cantata, but for those of you who were at one of the other campuses, uh, for example, uh, West Campus, Matt reminded us, and Micah, from Psalm 122, that we are to go to the house of the Lord. It's probably that psalm in the psalmist of a sense that really put the emphasis on, hey, we're going up and meeting the Lord. And I hope today that's what it begins to feel like for you. You're here expecting, hoping to meet with the Lord. And then Cody will finish out the last two of the sermons. He reminded us in Psalm 128 that the fear of the Lord leads us to blessing. And we look at the fear of the Lord, and that's a hard one to understand sometimes, but when we fear him properly, we have have blessing. We are blessed. We have all kinds of fears, and we'll talk about some of those even in our time today, but most of our fears don't necessarily feel like they're leading us to blessing, do they? And then just last week, Cody says that our hearts... God responds to the deepest needs by sending his son. So we looked at Psalm 130 last week. Before I start looking at Psalm 131 today, let me pray for all of us. Uh, Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that even some of the shortest parts of your word, and this is one of the shortest chapters in all the Bible, are full of things we need to hear, full of things we need to know, full of truths about you and ways to approach you that we forget easily and often. So I thank you for this powerful little psalm. I I pray that as I walk us through that today that you would 
Use me, your instrument, to preach, to teach, to encourage, to challenge our hearts, our minds, even our wills, that as a result, you would be glorified, we would be encouraged, that your truth goes out and it does not go out void. So prepare our hearts to hear from you. Prepare our minds to expect good things from you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I've already said, it's a short little psalm, three verses. Let me read all of those three verses uh, to you as we begin. Psalm 139, you'll find that if you're looking for it on the, in the Pew Bibles, there should be one close to you, a blue Bible. It's on page 519, probably well-worn because we've been in that section for a while now. Let me read. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord now and forevermore. Three simple little verses And you can tell that they break very neatly into three different points, three different emphases. You can see that David starts off this little psalm addressing the Lord. He says, oh Lord. It's like we're entering into his private prayer time with the Lord. And he says in that little verse, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high, and I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read those verses, that verse, I think, I'm not sure I would want to pray that boldly before the Lord, saying I don't do any of these things. And so, at least for me, and perhaps for many of us in this room, I think our invitation at this first part of the psalm is to approach the Lord with a form of confession. Now, confession means agreeing with God, and if this verse, as it's written, references and, and, and reflects on where your heart is, wonderful. Tell it to the Lord. But for me, I have to confess that the ways, all the ways that I make and we make our souls restless. The reality is this little psalm is trying to show us how to find a quiet and calmed heart. But I find that I have a restless heart. Now, I don't know about what you think, but I've been told that I have a very calm and quieting demeanor. Um, If you could only see inside. (laughs) This restless heart, this restless mind is constantly churning. And I know many of yours churn in the same way. You may have this appearance of having everything in control, but inside you're just scrambling. So I have to confess there's some things that keep me from enjoying a restful heart. David says, my heart's not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with, too th- with things too great and marvelous for me. But this is way I think most of us have to read this. Most of us have to admit that the way we would normally say it is, oh Lord, my heart is lifted up. My eyes are raised too high. I occupy myself with things too great and too 
marvelous for me. Uh, that's often the truth. Maybe it is for you as well. How do we reverse that? How do we change that? How do we begin to find our hearts oriented in a different way? Um, before I get to the subpoints under this, let me read from you 1 John 2.16. This is an interesting verse. As I thought and reflected on these on this passage, I just kept going back in my mind. I know I memorized this a long time ago, but here's what John writes. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Do you see the parallel between this first one and 1 John 2, 16? I think this is a common theme in all of the scriptures that we have to arrest our heart in some sense. Because the reality is we set our heart's affection on temporal pleasures. That's the most natural thing in the world for, do, for us to do. We set our heart's affections on temporal pleasures. Now what does this mean? Well, I think our, our, our desires, our longings, which is what the heart refers to here, is always trying to find its satisfaction in the created order. Paul points this out to us, and, and I won't turn there, but Romans 1 says, you know, we, we all have done this exchange. We've exchanged the truth for a lie, and we've exchanged the creation for the creator. Which means our hearts are constantly restless because they will never find satisfaction in the creation. The second thing we often do is we fix our eyes on material blessings. Now, we've just been through <laughs> a lot of material blessings in the last few days, hopefully. I mean, you've enjoyed Christmas and you've seen giving gifts and receiving gifts. How much can you remember of the Christmas before or the Christmas before that? The things that you've received, here's the challenge to all of us, and I think it's why consumerism lays hold to all of us is because the things we get will never satisfy us. So we have to keep pursuing more. And I think it's important for us to admit this. I think it's important for us to say, okay, where am I trying to find satisfaction in material things? You'll never be satisfied with your stuff. I'm at an interesting point in my life that having accumulated a lot of stuff over a long time of year, I'm at that point where I'm trying to get rid of it all. I'd be satisfied with less, but I can't figure out how to get rid of it. <laughs> and I, if you're not there yet, you will be, because I think after a while you realize you don't own your stuff, your stuff owns you. This time last year, just before this, I got a, a storage building, and I thought, well, this is great. I'll get one month, one month free, and, and I'll only pay for one month and we'll have it for two months and be done with it, right? Any of you thought this way before? <laughs> Any of you have a storage building someplace? Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I heard one family had four different places, just for one family. It wasn't a business, it was just the stuff that they accumulate. Because we have to keep accumulating if we're gonna find satisfaction in the stuff because it doesn't satisfy. Now, I'm glad for all the material blessings. I think we should give thanks for those things. 
But the, the fact of the matter is, if we set our, if we fix our eyes on material blessings, and, and let's face it, our eyes are bombarded with magazines and TV and advertisements and billboards and uh, even the things around us. We, we can't help but want the things we see. I think that's what John's referring to when he says about the, the one translation, the lust of the eyes. We see, we want. I have a toddler now and, and, and as a, um, a grandfather, and um, a lot of times, you know, you see this in young kids, don't you? Uh, they see something, they want it, it's theirs. There's not any sense of, <laughs> oh, that's yours, I'll leave it alone. And I'm sure there are screaming kids right now <laughs> down the hall because some kid saw something he wanted and he took it. Or maybe he was sneaky and he replaced it with somebody else. You know, that's what I was like when I was young. I'm told by my parents that when I was young, if I saw my sister playing with a toy that I wanted, I would just find something to distract her with, something for her to look at and enjoy more so that I could have what I wanted. Our eyes get us into trouble especially when they're focused on things that cannot satisfy. I think of the person writing this psalm, and I don't know if the timing of this was before or after Bathsheba, but boy, that sticks out. When I think of David, and I think of him and his eyes, I think of seeing Bathsheba from a distance and wanting her. And what kind of trouble it created for him and what kind of unrest it led him to. We want something other than God. And lastly, we dream of things that will bring us praise. Now, that sounds like a bold way to say that, but the reality is we all love to be recognized, appreciated, enjoyed. We love the praise of others. We love the affirmation of others. It's built into us ever since Adam and Eve took a bite of the fruit. And since I mentioned Adam and Eve, let me, let me remind us what they, the trouble they got into um, in Genesis chapter three. Again, you don't have to turn there. But this is what the serpent did, and I think he continues to challenge us in the same way. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil, and, and look at this. So when the woman saw that the tree, saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And as you know the story, you realize that there was a great inversion that Adam and Eve, because they wanted to be like God, because their eyes were fixed on and their hopes were fixed on things too great, too marvelous for them, they exchanged the creation for the creator. In short, we just want to be like God. Our society says, well, you be the best you can be. Be number one. We, we all have this competitive urge in some form or fashion, some area of our life. Sometimes it may not be athletics, but it may be something creative. It may be the way we dress ourselves, it may be the way we decorate our house, it may be the way that we do our jobs. But there's this thing inside of us, powered by the flesh, that makes us want to be just better than somebody else. 
And if we don't let go of these things, if we don't confess that there's lots of different ways that make us restless, we can never learn how to calm and quiet our hearts, our souls. But that's precisely what David said he was able to do. It's interesting to me. So let me read verse two. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now just like it's hard to say that first verse without saying, I'm not sure I can relate to that, probably you're struggling with this verse as well. But let me remind you of what our Savior says to us, to those his followers. In Matthew 18, he speaks of a certain kind of condition that must be true of us if we're going to enjoy, well, ultimately eternal life. Because he says in the first four verses of Matthew 18, at that time the disciples came to to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Boy, do you hear the parallel between this wanting things too great, too marvelous? And this is what our Savior says, calling to him a child. He put him in the midst of them and said, truly, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So I want to invite all of us, myself included, to be like a weaned child with his mother. I think that's the, that, that simile is used by David because it best represents to him someone who's just come by his mother and found rest, not wanting something from her, just wanting to be with her. And David expresses many times and throughout the scriptures this desire to be with him alone. It's better as one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. Just to be with the Lord, to find rest in him. And one such psalm is Psalm 16. Let's read a couple of verses. He says in verse one, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. In verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. So let me contrast because this expression, wean child, caught my attention. Probably caught yours too. Well, first of all, let's consider what an unweaned child is like. An unweaned child, well, at very first, when they're first born, may feed as often as nine times. I was astounded by that. My daughter told me when she was nursing her, her child that there were days when he fed nine different times. Now, mother's milk is a great provision of the Lord. It's a beautiful thing. But boy, it just doesn't quite sustain us, does it? We have to keep coming back often for more until we can eventually be weaned and eat some solid food that will allow us to, well, for one thing, rest through a whole night. It wasn't until my grandson was eating solid foods that he could rest the whole night long, sleep eight, nine, now 12 hours at a time. So what does this wean child look like? Well, again, I think it's important that David points out that he's with his mother. Not just a wean child of any kind, but a wean child with his mother. A, a, one who doesn't now come to mom because he needs the milk she can provide, but comes to her because he enjoys her, because he wants to be with her. An unweaned child cries constantly. 
It's the only way they can really communicate they have a need. So if there's a wet diaper, cry. Food, cry. But a weaned child doesn't cry for everything he needs. He approaches, he, he goes, he finds. Now he's able to be mobile and he can go to the father, he can go to his mother. So we need to calm and quiet our soul to silence the cries of discontent, the way within us. that There are cries of discontent that keep us from quiet and calm souls. I've created a little acronym. I hope that doesn't bother you. Some people like them, some don't, but I've created this acronym around the word abide. Because I think that's best representing this wean child with his mother or a calm and quiet soul. I know it's true for you, it's true for me, that ultimately that restlessness in me will not be calmed until I'm close to the Father in heaven. And I think David knew that. I think David found solace in the midst of all the trials he faced and the difficulties and the, and the, and the responsibilities he had. The only way that his heart, his soul could be calmed and quieted is if he went to his father. I think that's the real invitation here. So the first thing I wanna mention is appreciating God's love, which requires us to stop complaining. All of us believe, or most of us probably in this room, I hope, believe that God loves you. That's not an uncommon thought, an uncommon belief. But I found a lot of people who say, yes, I know God loves me, but they're not restful. And part of the reason I think, at least I can speak to this in my own life, is that it's because there's still welling up inside of them complaint, fault-finding, problem-finding. I'll give you a little vignette of my life, and and unfortunately, you're not gonna respect me after this, but that's okay. This is not about my respect, but... As I walk from building to building here on the campus, oftentimes, for example, the Soul Care building to the the Link building, which is where I have a lot of meetings. When I walk across a parking lot like that, I tend to look for little pieces of trash. (laughs) Uh, Oftentimes I come into a building or or, or a meeting and I've usually got little scraps of paper here and there. And I like a clean campus and I'm sure you appreciate one too. So that's not altogether a bad thing, but here's the challenge. This finding something that's wrong keeps me from enjoying what's right sometimes. You see, I should be able to walk across this parking area from one building to another and also enjoy the various ways God loves me. If the sun's out, I I should be able to enjoy. This is yet another provision of God, another grace from him, another way he represents his love to us. If it's raining, and and we need rain in this area, obviously, then I should be rejoicing the fact that Lord replenishes that which is dry. I should enjoy the fact that he created these beautiful trees around here just to enjoy, to look at. I I know they do more than just cause our enjoyment of what we see, but, but they're also expressions of love to us, aren't they? His design, and you go back to the Garden of Eden and he created trees for Adam and Eve to enjoy. He just said, stay away from this one. But he only banned them from one tree when there were who knows how many hundreds, thousands of trees that they were given free access to. So a tree should cause us to remember lots of things about the nature of God's love. 
And even though it's obvious, we should remember, obviously, the tree that Jesus died on. What a great and profound, the most profound expression of God's love. You see, there's so many different ways we can appreciate God's love. Not just, pardon me, know that we're loved by God, but appreciate, give thanks. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that we should in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We have to calm our restless hearts by realizing that God has given us so, so much that we could spend the rest of eternity thanking him and not have enough time. The second B is to be dependent. And by the way, before I move on to that, John 15, 9. And John 15 is a great passage. You just meditate about abiding. I think it's the greatest passage to meditate about abiding. Because uh, in it, Jesus shows us what abiding looks like. And in John 15, 9, and we'll look at a few of the verses here in John 15. As the Father has loved me, this is Jesus' words to us, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. There's a difference between knowing he loves us and abiding in that love. The second point, B, we should be dependent. In other words, we need to stop being in charge of everything. We need to acknowledge the Savior's sovereignty, his control over all things. And when we do, if we know that he's in control, our hearts can relax. We can rest. But if we think we're in control, our minds, our bodies will never stop churning. Look again in John 15, 4 and 5. Abide in, my, in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. A branch is worthless unless it's attached to the vine. And can I stretch that a little bit to say we are virtually worthless unless what we do and how we do it is attached to God and he's doing the work in and through us. Otherwise, nothing will last. It will dry up. It'll be withered and, as Jesus says, it'll be thrown into a fire eventually. James 4.8 invites us to draw near to God. And James tells us he'll draw near to us. I find a lot of people don't pray because they don't need God. At least I've recognized that in myself sometimes. Prayerlessness is at least a reflection of the fact that we want to be independent. We don't need him. Which is one of the reasons why our hearts are not restful. But when we go to him, when we remind ourselves, when he's there with us, for us, We can relax and enjoy the fact that he's in charge. Thirdly, invest, I. We want to invest in the world. We need to stop relying on our own wisdom. Most of you have known Psalm, I mean Proverbs 3, 4, and 5. Um, we're not, we, we get into trouble when we don't rely on God's wisdom. When we rely on our own wisdom. Again, Jesus invites us in John 15, 7, to remember that we're to abide in his words. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. 
It's amazing. Do you, do you meditate? Do you abide in his word? Do you invest in the word? Do you meditate and memorize? I find that people who are most anxious are often most removed from spending time in the word. They're removed from spending time in prayer. And they wonder why they're getting more and more anxious all the time. In Psalm 16, 7 and 8, we looked at Psalm 16 briefly, but let's look at 7 and 8. We didn't look at these verses. And this is a Psalm of David. I think it's appropriate. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Or I can be quieted and calmed. If I go before the Lord, if I remember his words, and the best way to know the Lord is to spend time here. It will always, this book will always point us to God because that's what its purpose is, to show us what God's like, to encourage us with what he does. He sustains us. D stands for declaring truth. Um, Dave Martin Lloyd-Jones is a pastor who passed away in 1981, British pastor. He was a medical doctor before he uh, became a pastor. And um, he's got a book called Spiritual Depression, which I recommend if you, uh, if you have not read that. If you struggle with, with discouragement, you struggle with sadness and challenges in your life, it's a great book. He says in the first part of that that we've got to stop listening to ourselves and we have to st start speaking to ourselves. He uses as an example Psalm 42. You've heard this verse. I think we've even read it during our series. Uh, but in Psalm 42, David again says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now what's David doing? He's recognizing that his soul is restless. And he's, instead of just continuing to consider the restless thoughts, he starts to speak promises to himself. He speaks the truth that God who is with him will never forsake him or leave him. That God is his salvation. That God will be with him. Look at Psalm 34, verse four and six and seven. And again, I could go on and on because the scriptures and the Psalms in particular are full of this kind of reflection of, okay, my life is in shambles or I'm going through a difficult time, but let me remember who Jesus is. Verse four, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse six, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. And verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. And then verse chapter 38 and verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, who will answer. Remind yourself of the Lord's greatness, not of your predicament. The Lord's sovereignty and power over all creation, even the circumstances you find yourself in. And lastly, we want to exchange our life 
But in order to do that, we need to stop living our old life. Jesus offers us new life. In fact, we sang about it earlier. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He offers us life, but in order to get that life, we have to die to our old. We can't have the new stuff unless we let go of the old stuff. And some of us are having trouble in that area. I, I know that one of the verses that's hardest to understand in some ways is some of the things that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says there that um, we have a new life, that we no longer consider what used to be true. He says in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, at least those who are in Christ Jesus, right? And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. And then verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, I know the reality for most of us it sometimes, many days, doesn't feel like we're living anything new. It feels like we're still stuck in the past. There's two particular concerns that we in Soul Care have as we minister to people who come through there. Um, people who are stuck in suffering. There are some things in the past that are so marking on a person's life that they can't hardly think of themselves apart from those experiences. We call that stuck in suffering. The sins and the evil that's come upon them seem hard to shake. Seems like it's left an indelible mark and oftentimes the world really treats us that way. The other is maybe we're stuck in sin. We're stuck in a sin pattern that we just frankly don't feel like we can ever get out of it. That's precisely why we do ministries like Thrive. And some of our Counseling. In fact, let me challenge you to consider doing Thrive if you're stuck in your suffering or stuck in your sin. We are starting new groups in February, and there's open applications available now. It's a great way to begin to realize I am a new creature. The old things have passed away. I'm no longer identified by or determined to live a certain way because of what's happened or what I've done. That's great news, and Jesus died and bled on the cross so that we could know that we have freedom from those things. So that we could live a free life. So we could have a calm, a calm and quiet soul. And frankly, some of us who've been Christians for a long time have almost never experienced that. And, and I would hope and plead with you that you would consider that. First part says we should confess, or at least we need to be, be honest with ourselves and say, are, are our hearts lifted up? Are, are our eyes raised too high? Are we pursuing things too great, too marvelous for us? If so, we need to acknowledge that. And then we're invited to be like a child, a weaned child with his mother, to rest. And I've offered the acronym ABIDE. Um, to help us see how can we enter into that rest. And there is a responsibility on our part. There's something for us to do. And this last part is very simple. 
David ends this psalm by saying, O Israel, hope in the Lord, now and forevermore. Now, if you are already enjoying that, basking in the hope that we have, then can I encourage you to invite the dissatisfied to find hope in the Lord from now on? If you found this quiet, this rest in your soul, there are a lot of people around you that don't have it. Share with them that you can find hope in Jesus now. Share with him, with them, that the hope that is yet to come is greater than the hope we can find in him now, that we have a forevermore reality that we haven't quite fully entered into yet, but that's what sustains us because hope that is seen is not hope at all. Paul says that. So let's take them to the one who offers hope, who offers rest. Go to him yourself. And let me pray as I finish this time. Invite us to do all that right now. Father, I thank you that you are the hope giver. I thank you that truly, even today, our souls can find their rest in you. We can be quieted, even in the midst of a very frenetic life. As you use Ryan to lead us further into your throne room, I pray that we would enjoy you in fresh ways this year. In Jesus' name, amen.